here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas as well. Thanks for Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. I hope you have the merriest of Christmases. Hope the holiday season has treated you well. The upshot is, even if you haven't, and even if it hasn't, you're still not that guy. You're still not that guy. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't get much worse than someone effectively saying, blank you, and you saying, thank you. And uh, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I, I agree. That sounds about right. But, I mean, really, at that point, are there any questions? Are there any questions? You can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's why reality is so much better than fiction when it comes to entertainment. Aside from the kind of harsh reality that, oh, yeah, this guy is, in theory, the most powerful person on the planet. So we got that going uh, for us or against us, based upon how you read between these particular lines. Hey there, and uh, I do hope you've had a, a wonderful Christmas season. This is Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. I am the host of The Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach, and the host of The Brian Mudd Show on WIOD in Miami. It is always an honor and a pleasure guesting for The Great One and getting to spend time with you, which I have the pleasure of being able to do the next couple of days. And as we advance, you may also advance on social media along with me. And I'd love to hear from you. And hit me up at Brian Mud Radio on Twitter, on Getter, on Parlor, And uh, you may ask me some questions as well. In fact, we'll get into a little bit of that coming up. Also, your calls at 877-381-3811. Now, if only Kamala Harris, if only... She had gotten out of D.C. If only that had happened more, it would all be different. It would all be different. Now, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that if she were to leave D.C. permanently, the country would be in a better place. Right? I mean, I think that's a reasonable uh, assessment. A reasonable assessment. Although then we've got the guy who agrees with... uh, you know, the the assessment of, of let's go Brandon as, as president left to his own devices. But nevertheless, if Harris is no longer our vice president, if she's no longer in D.C. in any capacity, we're probably better off. But that's not actually what she was referring to when she answered the question on CBS's Face the Nation as to what her biggest mistake as vice president has been. Nope. She just thinks... You know, if she had just traveled more, everything would have been better. And best of all, she blamed the virus for her self-identified biggest mistake. Quoting her, I mean, and I actually mean that sincerely for a number of reasons. You know, it's one of the interesting things. If you listen to an interview, if you happen to catch the vice president on Face the Nation yesterday or anything afterwards. 
you kind of hear her fumble through her response and her answer. And it doesn't have the same effect as going back and reading it. I've always enjoyed reading quotes for that reason. Because, again, this is her answer to her biggest mistake. I mean, and I actually mean that sincerely for a number of reasons. You know, unlike all the other crap that I usually say. Continuing, you know, I, we, the president and I came in, you know, COVID had already started. It was, the pandemic had started. Now, this is all part of her answer. This is word for word what she had to say to her self-identified biggest mistake. When she said it was, I, I almost felt like it was. It was soap poisoning. It was so deliberate, her approach here. But anyway, I digress. Continuing with the quote, I'm going to start over and I'll pick up here. Again, her self-identified biggest mistake. I mean, and I actually mean that sincerely for a number of reasons. You know, I, we, the president and I came in. You know, COVID had already started. It was the pandemic had started. And when we came in, We really couldn't travel. We really couldn't travel. Right. The president and the vice president of the United States, most powerful people on the planet, they really couldn't travel because of the pandemic. And if they had only moved around just a little bit more this year, inflation wouldn't be at the highest levels since Captain Peanuts era. Jimmy Carter, in case you're slowing the uptake. We wouldn't have allowed more illegal immigrants into the United States through our southern border than the population of 10 states this year. If only they would have moved around a little more. This doesn't happen. You see, the supply chain crisis, I mean, that just wouldn't be a thing. If only they had moved out of D.C. a little bit more. Terrorists, they wouldn't have taken over Afghanistan on our watch. No. If only... They could have moved around a little more, you know, like the over 2 million Americans who flew commercially yesterday. If only they could have done that, it all would have been different. All would have been different. It's the biggest mistake. It's just we couldn't get out of D.C. more because of the pandemic. Speaking of different, according to said fearful leader, the United States will lose role model status. Role model status. So once again, quoting Harris, in the days and weeks ahead, I will engage the American people and I will work with voting rights organizations, community organizations, and the private sector to help strengthen and uplift efforts on voting rights nationwide. And we will also work with members of Congress to help advance these bills. Okay, first question. Show of hands here. How many people are saying to themselves, hey, you know what I'm really missing? You know what I really want more of in my life? Is some, I don't know, Mala Harris. Is that what you're missing most right now? That's one. And two, she's suggesting that the United States will no longer be the role model of how to conduct elections unless... There's a federal takeover of election systems undermining the 10th Amendment to the Constitution 
You know, the, the very document, uh, that whole pesky thing, according to the left, which allowed for, you know, American liberty, American exceptionalism. So anyway, fresh off of having failed with the Build Back BS Act, a big thank you to Joe Manchin for delivering the best gift of all this holiday season and effectively killing it for now. She's focused on future election theft by the federal government as a means of ensuring that the uh, Joe Manchins of our federal government, along with governors, our state legislatures, that they no longer really matter. See, in Harris's eyes, that's what's necessary for the United States to retain role model status. Role model status over conducting our elections. So quoting her once again, we have been a role model saying you can see this and aspire to this and reject autocracies and and autocratic leadership. Right now, we're about to take ourselves off the map as a role model if we let people destroy one of the most important pillars of a democracy, which is free and fair elections. Okay, so according to Democrats, elections were stolen in 2016. You know, when Trump and generally Republicans won, they were stolen then. But then apparently, we regained role model status by 2018, despite more elected Republicans serving at the local, state, and federal level than at any other time in American history between 2016 and 2018. Somehow or another, despite them having stolen the elections originally in 2016, they helped restore role model status to elections. But then it all was put into jeopardy uh, again, because, I mean, after all, it really would be harder to steal. Really would be harder to steal elections going forward, you know, with 14 states having passed various election integrity measures this year. So I, I suppose the logic is this. How can Democrats expect to win with things like voter ID? No ballot harvesting. Supervised drop boxes. I mean, come on. So that's the next federal battle, which was a battle at the state level this year. And one that we've actually made a great deal of progress on. Something we can feel pretty good about. So back to where we started here. Let's go, Brandon. I agree. That quote from President Biden sums up this year. And I think it's something we can all agree on. I mean, after all, if Biden agrees, who's really in a position to differ? It's either that or one has to admit that, I don't know, Joe Biden's really like the dementia man in chief. So I'll report and and you can decide. But aside from having some fun with the vice president and the president, the point is this. I was thinking a lot about this recently. I was thinking back to a year ago, actually, at this time. Happened to be these same two days a year ago, guest hosting for Mark Levin in the midst of everything we had going on at that point. I talked about focusing on what we could control, how we could be constructive. And that was a focus on election integrity, a focus on what is going on closest to home. Joe Biden in particular, this administration in particular, really pushes the limits of a saying that I've long articulated. 
But it is still generally true that it's often the elections that happen closest to us in geography that have the biggest impact on our daily life. The example I'll use is even independent of, you know, Democrat, Republican, partisan politics. Anybody who's ever lived under an over-anxious, over-active, just intrusive HOA understands how true that really is, right? But we hadn't done that. It was one thing in particular we were really bad at doing for a long time. Now, I was thinking about how much progress that we have made. 14 states having passed election integrity measures of some sort this year. And more important than that, and that is, is hugely important, starting to mind the store again and what's going on closer to home. Starting to pay attention to school board races. Taking back education. Because the other thing that I pointed out a year ago at this time was how critical it was that we begin to reclaim what's happening in the classrooms. And you take a look for everything we've been through this year and everything that we've got to go through for the next few years under this administration. That's kind of a daunting thought, but I'm an optimist. We have made a great deal of progress. We have made a great deal of progress. And with momentum heading into 2022 in particular, there is a lot that we can feel bitter about because we're doing a better job controlling what we can control starting at home. I'm going to talk a lot about some of those particular themes tomorrow. But for now, we're going to be digging in on what could be a catalyst for what we're up against heading into next year. And I'll pick up there next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd Lovin'. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks, that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. failure has been at this point <laughs> to not get out of dc more <laughs> i mean uh, and i actually mean that sincerely uh, for a number of reasons when we came in we really couldn't travel you know uh, a large part of the relationship that he and i have built has been being in this you know together in the same office for hours on end doing zooms or whatever because we couldn't get out of dc So there it is. I mean, that's it's the big thing. I mean, you have managed to be able to visit your family. Over two million yesterday alone, able to fly in the middle of the, this pandemic. But no, I mean, the most powerful people on the planet. It just darn pandemic. We weren't able to go anywhere. And if only we had, <laughs> it all would have been better. All of your problems 
everything from four or $5 gas to not being able to find things that you are looking for, not just the holiday season, but like, you know, I don't know, on Tuesday. Afghanistan, the border, the fact that we've got untold millions of Americans, starting today in New York City with the vaccine mandate, talk about that coming up in a bit, uh, that are uh, set to get fired, but many more uh, that are set to get fired next week. I mean, all these things would be better if only they had been able to do what millions have been able to do this holiday season and just get out of D.C. more. So there you go. It's uh, you, You've got to feel good with these two at the top. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin, and something that we have to be mindful of as we head towards next year is the degree of desperation. I mean, you can sense it. Whether it happens to be that Face the Nation interview with the vice president or, I don't know, the fact that the president of the United States is so clueless he actually agrees with somebody effectively telling him to blank himself. We have to realize that it's going to get ugly from here. And probably a lot uglier than what we've already seen. You probably have noticed, but Democrats are generally desperate. Generally desperate, and for good reason. Good reason. They control the entire federal government. And the country managed to go to hell in a handbasket in just a matter of months under their watch. And remember, we're still not even a full year into this thing at this point. So, I mean, there frankly isn't a level of suck to describe just how truly awful their leadership of of an otherwise great country has been throughout this year. So, with Democrats generally desperate nationally, Naturally, they've straight up lost their minds when they've started focusing on 2022. And you have noticed a number and an increasing number of key defections in Democrats in Congress that have decided they're not going to run next year. But for everybody else, it's about what comes next. And you got to remember that desperate people do desperate things. Desperate people do desperate things. What does that mean? Well, it means an awful lot. That's what's on our radar. What we've got to be paying attention to. We'll talk about some of those things coming up next. Also, get your thoughts. We'll go to the phones as well. I'm Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin. Mark Levin, America's mentor of conservatism. Call now at 877-381-3811. Do you think you're being set up to fail? No, I don't believe I'm being set up to fail. But um, these more, are more Democrats. But, but more important, I'm vice president of the United States. Anything that I handle is because it's a tough issue. And it couldn't be handled at some other level. A tough issue. Couldn't be handled at another level. Kind of like the border, right? I mean, eh, pesky border patrol. Why would we let them actually do their job? Should be handled at their level. It should be handled at mine. That's why we'll just have open borders and let more illegal immigrants into this country than the population of 10 states. Which, by the way, when I've said that from time to time, I've had people come back and say, well, hold on. No, I mean, they're, they're you know, legitimate asylum seekers and all this. OK, well, let me give you an idea about the quote unquote legitimate asylum seekers. We continue to see 
that in excess of the legitimate, the so-called legitimate asylum seekers, over 80% never show up for anything. So let's say for a moment that they crawl across the border and uh, then we go ahead and, and we process them and they say, oh, would you like a first class flight to, I don't know, Miami? And they say, yes, I really would like a first-class flight in the middle of the night to Miami. They go, great, we got you covered. And so they get go ahead and get you and your family who, who just uh, crawled across the border. Uh, we, we go ahead and get you set up that first-class flight in the middle of the night to, to Miami. It, it could be to New York City as well. It could be to Long Island. These things, you know, it, it's all based upon your preference, of course. You know, they're spare no expense from the American taxpayer, right? So anyway, then you get your, your papers, which these days often include no actual court dates because there's such a backlog in the system that, you know, often the notice to appear doesn't have any timetable attached to it. Maybe at best there would be a check-in with authorities somewhere along the way. But anyway, whether it's a check-in with authorities or an actual court appearance, that, that never happens over 80% of the time. And then the majority of those who actually do show up the very few, the the overwhelming minority who actually do show up. Well, those people, those people, then end up being a illegal immigrant or illegal immigrants, as the case may be. It's a remarkable how that that turns out. So the net net of it all is that over ninety percent, by the time you go to the end of the process, what we are saying is that over ninety percent of the people across our southern border are turning out to be illegal immigrants, period. Two sides of stories and one set of facts. So at this point, with closing in on 2 million people having crossed our southern border this year, yeah, we've we've allowed in more illegal immigrants this year than the population of 10 states. And the best part is, often we will take care of these illegal immigrants at our expense and also sending them to where they want to go at our expense. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin, and I mentioned desperate people do desperate things. So what does that mean? Well, we've already got a taste with members of the congressional squad demanding Joe Biden bypass Congress to engage in dictatorial policies to enact the Build Back BS Act. All right, so Manchin said, nope, not going to happen. So, yeah, and now you got the squad that's out there saying, no, Biden, you just need to do it through executive action. Okay? Kamala Harris has already indicated that they'll engage in a full-court press to attempt to federally control elections. These are the things that are now out there in the open. But what else is there? Without a doubt, a lot. A lot. And remember, it's often what happens closest to home that has the biggest impact on our daily lives. And this is something that we've begun to excel at over the past year, minding the store at home, starting with our school boards. So continuing to focus on what that other hand is doing will likely be as important as ever over the next year, because starting with our Constitution— we are going to see, likely, an unprecedented attack on it, 
your liberty and our freedoms generally as that desperation plays out. So we're making progress, but it's going to get tougher before it gets better. Little doubt that will end up being the case. Now, a couple things that we can do in the grand scheme of things. Have you ever wanted to make a difference? And you'll, you'll think, yes, well, I've wanted to make a difference. Well, one of the problems we often will have is what? Do we have good candidates? Do we have good candidates, especially for local elections, right? And so if you're in a position to be that candidate, well, maybe you, you take that role. If not, you help vet locally and get good candidates. What about supporting people? Have you really taken the time to try to figure out who would make a difference within your community? Who would make a difference within your schools, the classroom? A lot of times, even for those that are diligent, when we're minding this door with local elections, it's once candidates have already been established. Maybe you you show up and you, you see what's going to be on your ballot and you try to do a good job vetting those candidates and pick the best one. But how often... Do you find yourself in a situation where you don't feel like there are good options? To where you're choosing the lesser of evils? Or there just aren't clear answers? Well, at a certain point, that's a failure of all of us as well. So one of the things as we we look towards trying to make a difference and as we look towards next year and as we combat desperate people doing desperate things which, again, given the assaults in the classroom, given the assaults in our Constitution, no telling what, what's going to happen. Remember, we had people earlier this year, teachers, that signed a pledge saying that they would teach critical race theory. They would teach critical race theory, even if it was outlawed in a state like mine, the free state of Florida. You have people that are willing to do things because they're desperate and because they Felt like they were going to be able to get whatever their grandiose socialist idea was out of this administration and out of this Congress. And heaven knows that we've been a little more than a mansion and occasionally a cinema away from being in that particular place. But it really is important that we check all of those little boxes. We do the things starting at home. That make that difference. One of the other problems we have when it comes to local elections, when it comes to school boards, when it comes to education generally, it's often just parents that get involved. Well, how many people who don't have kids pay for the schools? How many people who don't have kids have a vested interest in what happens in the classroom? So we also need to make sure that it's not just something the parents are focusing on. You know, there are a lot of great grandparents, for example, might have an opportunity to step up and try to make a difference. Might be people that weren't able to have kids, but really are concerned with what's happening in the classroom. So we need to rethink the way that we have kind of handled things. It's that next level conversation as we've taken some big steps this year to pay attention, to mind the store a bit more. So one of these days, One of these days, we're going to be able to take a look back and go, okay, for everything that we went through, here's how it began to come together. 
And it comes together when you have the right people in the right places. And it all starts at home. So just like President Trump, what is he busy doing right now? Well, he's busy vetting candidates, right? Primaries clear across the country. Now, I happen to be in an event with him in a private setting uh, recently. You might have heard about the, the Trump O'Reilly tour and in a uh, president setting, uh, a, uh, a private setting with the president. And even in that setting, just a handful of people, he was vetting candidates. He's laser focused on next year. So the question is, if you care, are you laser focused on next year? What's happening with your local elections? Who the primary candidates for Congress will be? These really do matter. We all have our place. We all have our role. And we all can make a difference. And it's going to be needed because, again, desperate people do desperate things. And something else we have to be mindful of when it comes to desperate people doing desperate things. This is something that I have been extending the conversation on quite a bit, uncomfortably at times, in South Florida, on my local shows. Teachers. We want to think that teachers are always up for, for doing the right thing, except for that rare exception that might make the news on occasion when they get outed by a student who records something in the classroom. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, I know that at least in my state, in Florida, 78% of public school teachers are members of a teacher's union, a teacher's union whose parent is the American Federation of Teachers, which is the Randy Weingarten organization, the organization that conspires with the CDC on policy and whether schools are going to be open, and if so, what conditions and mask mandates and the like, right? So some point, we have to also take a look at maybe a majority of the people that we otherwise want to trust and wonder if they're doing the right things. We need to put a greater emphasis on it because I can tell you if there are 78% of teachers in the state of Florida, and be a lot of states where the number is even higher than that, they're members of a union who are part of the problem. And they're either part of the problem by choice or they're part of the problem by just simply contributing to it. So again, there's a full approach, a full court press, what we've got to pay attention to, as there's no doubt a lot of what we have been working on throughout the course of this year and a lot of what the left is getting extraordinarily frustrated about is going to manifest itself in a very big way, probably sometime starting as early as next week. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd Lovin. Climate change didn't cause the disastrous withdrawal where, uh, you know, we had military people that were bombed and killed. Uh, climate change didn't, ca didn't cause the defunding of the police, nor did it cause the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline. And you can go on and on. Oh, right, because also in that Face the Nation interview, you had the vice president who said that the biggest threat that we face is indeed climate change. And uh, so that happened to be South Carolina Congressman 
Ralph Norman on a little bit of his his take on her response regarding climate change and the overall threat to our society today. But look, in the grand scheme of things, uh, there's not a whole lot to be terribly surprised by, except that, except that, think about this for a moment. What were your expectations on January 20th? Think back to when Joe Biden was sworn in as president. What were your expectations for this year? I can tell you with Democrats having complete control of Congress and with Joe Biden becoming president of the United States, my my expectations were super low, super low. It's been a lot worse than I even realized. (laughs) As bad as I thought it would be, it's like, holy crap, a man should be even worse. You know, it took Jimmy Carter... You know, solid three years to really jack the country up to the extent that he effectively managed to in the end through incompetence. Joe Biden and company, they managed to do it in just a handful of months. I mean, some of that is probably the the pandemic, because when you can't, I don't know, remember what day of the week it is, probably have a hard time managing during a difficult environment to begin with, let alone trying to engage and enact a, a socialist agenda. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. Talking about desperate people doing desperate things, and Democrats will, without a doubt, be desperate entering next year. Again, already members of the squad calling on President Biden to engage in unilateral action to enact the Build Back BS Act after Joe Manchin said it's a no-go on his side. The vice president saying that it is going to be a full-court press to get their Voting Rights Act passed that they did in the name of of John Lewis. And of course, you are a racist and you are a bigot if you're critical of the vice president or of the federal takeover of voting rights. So it's going to get loud. And there's a lot that we're going to be up against over the next year. There's also something else that is important in the grand scheme of things as well as we head towards a midterm election cycle. Elections themselves, of course, which is why you have such a focus this year on election integrity measures. 14 states having done at least something. Many more should. That needs to remain a focus heading into next year. But also those that were already found to have engaged in voter fraud. So one of the things that I will frequently refer to is the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database. Because you know the left's running argument, oh, voter fraud, there's no such thing, or it almost never happens, or it's like the most rare thing that's ever occurred in this country. All you have to do is go to the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database, and you go, oh, right. So just since they've been keeping track of these things, There are 1,334 proven cases of voter fraud. Oh, look at that. There are 1,147 criminal convictions for voter fraud. Huh. All 50 states, there's been criminal voter fraud somewhere along the way. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so take a look at the Heritage Foundation's voter fraud database. This year, we've had 15 proven cases and 11 criminal convictions of voter fraud, most pertaining to last year's election cycle. All right, now, 
the states where these proven cases took place. Oh, right. Let's see. Uh, California. Okay. So we have proven voter fraud this year. California. Colorado. Kansas. Oh, look at that. Michigan. Huh. Somebody was really convicted of criminal voter fraud in Michigan from last year's election cycle. Shut the front door. Mississippi. New Hampshire. Pennsylvania. Boy, that's another big surprise, isn't it? Virginia. And West Virginia. So, yes, this is just what we know. One of the things I'll dig into tomorrow, what we don't know and what we need to mind this tour on. Be right back. Brian Mudd in for the great one. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. One thing we can all agree, and I've talked to a lot of business leaders about this, COVID is bad for humans, it's bad for our health, but it's also bad for business. And if we want to avoid shutdowns, and I believe we must, we need more and more people vaccinated. So today, the mandate goes into effect for the entire private sector in New York City, all employers. This is how we get people vaccinated. (laughs) Dictatorship. That's how we get people vaccinated. Get vaxxed or, or get fired. That's how we get things done. And something that we can all agree is that COVID is bad for business. Bad for people. Actually, here's the great irony. Here's the great irony of that particular statement. That happens to be Bill de Blasio on his way out of office, but not before he's done maximum damage to New York City by putting a vax mandate for businesses in place today. You have a lot of businesses that have prospered during the pandemic, don't you? So here's the great irony behind the dictatorial policies, the Marxist policies of the left during the course of this pandemic. What de Blasio just said, that's not true at all. All you have to do is go to take a look at some stock prices of many very large companies, often in technology, perhaps in healthcare, that have just thrived ever since the pandemic began. And one of the many reasons why they thrived? Well, what happens when you have local businesses, say in New York City or anywhere USA, that get the screws taken to them? What happens with demand that otherwise would go to those smaller companies? To mom and pa? Does it not get displaced and go elsewhere? And so do you not see, for example, big technology companies, incidentally, right in line with the overall politics and philosophy of the Marxist Democrats in Washington today, have they not done exceedingly well during the course of this pandemic? Do they not have, in many cases, a vested interest 
and seen it continue to play out as long as possible? How about a lot of these drug companies? A lot of the pharmaceutical companies. You think they have perhaps a vested interest in this thing continuing to to play out? So there's irony in what de Blasio had to say, in addition to there being factual inaccuracies. But what we do continue to see is that while politicians like him continue to take the screws to smaller companies, larger companies with an aligned political interest, though they do often tend to benefit Brian Mudd, and for the great one, Mark Levin, I'm the host of The Morning Rush, WJNO in West Palm Beach, and The Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. Always an honor, a privilege, a pleasure to be here guesting for the great one, Mark Levin. You may follow me on Twitter, on Parlor, on Getter, at Brian Mudd Radio, on all. Manufactured. Manufactured. That's a term that was used as part of a quote from Yale epidemiologist Dr. Harvey Risch recently. Incidentally, somebody that the great one has interviewed on Life, Liberty, and Levin previously. Continuing with what Dr. Risch had to say. said, overall, I'd say that we've had a pandemic of fear. And fear has affected almost everybody, whereas the infection has affected relatively few. By and large, it's been a very selected pandemic and predictable. It was very distinguished between young versus old, healthy versus chronic disease people. So we've quickly learned who was at risk for the pandemic and who wasn't. However, the fear was manufactured for everybody. And that's what's characterized the whole pandemic is that degree of fear and people's response to the fear. Right, so here we sit with the news media and with U.S. health officials hyping Omicron like it's the onset of the pandemic all over again, right? when there's an ever-increasing possibility that it's actually, this variant might be a key to ending it. Could be the key to ending it. And look, it's still a bit early to know exactly where this is all going, but we have plenty of time to know how this already went for those who first contracted it, right? So the timeline, you take a look at the timeline, of when Omicron was diagnosed, what's happened with those people, overall case counts, case levels, and outcomes, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing that in reality, the overall risk for those who've contracted it has been much less, much less. So let's take a look at a bit of a reality check here. I'm going to get into some numbers, so I'm going to slow my roll because I want to establish the point without burying you with with too much information. The first identified case of Omicron in the U.S. was detected in California on November 29th. On November 29th, the U.S. averaged 81,600 
new daily cases of COVID over the prior week. Entering this week, so through Saturday, through Christmas, the U.S. had averaged 189,600 new daily cases. Okay? It's an increase of 188,000 per day. Or if we're playing the percentages, we've had a greater than doubling, a 232% increase in new cases. Okay? That kind of an increase in new cases with this variant. On November 29th, the U.S. averaged 899 daily COVID deaths. Entering this week, the U.S. was averaging 1,055 daily deaths. Okay, so that's an increase of 17%. Got that? So again, I know it's a lot of numbers. It's going to walk you through the end result here again. Over the past month plus, that Omicron has made its way into the U.S., We've seen a 232% increase in cases, but only a 17% increase in related deaths, according to the CDC's data. All right, so what does that tell you? In fact, it's even more dramatic when you look at what's happened worldwide since the onset of this variant. Since the first diagnosed case, the first one popped up in November, daily cases of COVID worldwide are up 51%. But get this, deaths worldwide, they're actually down 13% over that same time. Got that? So yes, there's often a bit of a lag between a diagnosis, a hospitalization, and death if that's going to occur. We're now talking about over five weeks, over five weeks of data worldwide, over four weeks that we have stateside. And it tells a very specific story, doesn't it? Yet here we are with New York City having the imposed VAX mandate today with the Biden administration through their OSHA rule set to have their private employer get vaxxed or get fired mandate go through next week with something that has, to date, proven to be much less severe, much less severe than what we faced previously. Again, just by what's already happened. And how is it that ultimately we get ourselves out of these things? How is it that pandemics end? Well, pandemics end when? The end when you have variants of a virus that are less severe, have less of an impact, and they become the dominant strain. So is it not possible that as you have this full freakout mode going going on with, with more restrictive policies than we've seen at any point going in place right now and next week, is it not possible that we could be seeing some of the desperation which I was speaking about in the first hour, where you're going to see the left engage in a lot of desperation, start to play out in ways that 
maybe we aren't expecting or hadn't been looking for. Now, a lot of people have been thinking that the left would hold on to this pandemic as long as they can. Somewhere along the way, we have to take a look at the data and we have to force the issue in it. Again, we'll see where this goes. But the facts, the underlying facts right now, certainly do not equal the policy that we're seeing in New York City. Certainly does not justify what we're set to see next week with the OSHA rule pending the Supreme Court's taking up of that particular mandate. Where are you, Supreme Court, before untold tens of millions of Americans potentially get fired? All something we need to pay attention to. Oh, but wait, that's right. Now Biden agrees with GOP governors. You hear about this today. Yeah, no, that that's right. Biden now agrees with GOP governors. So that's cute. That's cute. And talk about how Biden is trying to do a 180 now. As some of this data that I was just talking about, it's really becoming hard to spin. So I'm going to dive in on that next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd, love in. With Omicron coming with cold weather, it was time to do more. Well, thank God we did because these mandates have been absolutely necessary to keep the city going. The reason the city keeps going, the reason we are open when some other places are shut down is because of our focus on vaccination and because we use mandates and incentives. (laughs) You've got all that. Thank God for mandates. And then de Blasio tries to say that mandates somehow or another equal freedom. Thank God for these mandates so that we can be open, so that we can have some degree of of freedom. Is that even (laughs) in his mind, this makes sense. And by the way, who shut down exactly? So New York City, the reason that uh, we're not not shut down are because of of these vaccine mandates that went into place today. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. it's, It's hard. It's really hard uh, to take these people seriously, except the problem is kind of have to, right? Because elections have consequences. De Blasio, still mayor for at least the rest of this week. And so he's going to do maximum damage on his way out of office. But Joe Biden, well, what what is not going to take place in New York City this week is going to take place starting next week, right? With the vaccine mandate. But hold on. Now... Joe Biden agrees with GOP governors. This was fascinating today. Fascinating. So quoting President Biden on a call today with governors, he had this to say. There is no federal solution. Well, praise be. I mean, thank you, Joe Biden. It's taken you a little while. Perhaps something that I don't know just about Every Republican governor, especially mine, Ron DeSantis in the free state of Florida, has been saying since the onset of this thing, there is no federal solution. So today, Biden says on this call with governors, there is no federal solution. Continuing with this quote, this gets solved at the state level. Huh. Okay, so not only 
Is this what Republican governors have been saying since the onset of the pandemic? It Not only is it the literal antithesis of what he's been saying and what he's been directing, it comes eight days, eight days in advance of his one-size-fits-all anti-American policy of getting vaxxed or getting fired. Isn't that cute? Here's another quote from Biden on today's call. My message to the governors is simple. If you need something, say something. Well, doesn't that sound nice? So, is it possible? Legitimate question here. Is it possible Biden literally doesn't remember, I don't know, setting the vaccine mandate policy? Is it possible that he doesn't remember saying this in response to Florida and Texas's response in September. If they'll not help, if these governors won't help us beat the pandemic, I'll use my power as president to get them out of the way. Is it possible that he just doesn't remember saying that? Is it possible he doesn't remember his ongoing battle with Governor Ron DeSantis? But yeah, now the answer is at the state level. Except next week, you still have the get vaxxed or get fired policy. So, right. This all makes a great deal of sense. It makes about as much sense as you would expect from somebody who clearly is having some cognitive issues. Now, question is, where does this go from here? And is Biden perhaps banking? on the Supreme Court trying to shut this whole thing down. But what's fascinating in the coverage that's come out this afternoon on back of this whole conference with governors today, you notice the coverage? It's all glowing. You know, Biden himself on the way to to the plane to Air Force One, he said, yeah, everybody agreed. Everybody was on the same page there. Everything's good now. Going to help them get all the tests they need. And uh, yeah, we're, we're all... It's a cohesive effort. All 50 states and me. So that's the way it's being covered. Never mind the fact that Joe Biden, at no point during this pandemic, has allowed for a state solution. And we still have next week's federal dictate. But details, details, and facts. Right Mark Levin Show, live and national at 877-381-3811. If I had, we had known we would have gone harder, quicker if we could have, because steps we have to take an increase the number of authorized tests, we're now able to purchase 500 million at-home rapid tests to be sent to the American people for free. Okay, so now we're hearing from... The administration, I mean, if we had only known that, you know, really, we're going to see so many cases, then we would have done more to provide for tests. Okay. So, yeah, if you're having a hard time getting a a test right now, the Biden administration is on it. And this is completely unlike other supply chain problems this year. You have complete confidence in this administration being able to manage the supply chain, right? So I guess we're just supposed to forget. 
that they were telling us just how pervasive the Omicron variant was going to be, right? We were supposed to forget that back when the first case was diagnosed, you had news media and the administration waiting for the next one so they could report, and it's now made it to this state and to this state, and telling us that we are going to have another dark winter and telling us that we were going to have a, another huge wave. But somewhere along the way, they didn't really realize it was going to be that bad, and so they didn't get together as many tests as have been necessary at this point. Got it. It's about as consistent as the rest of this administration's policy, with about a similar level of competence as well. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. Hope you had a very Merry Christmas in spite of this administration and uh, holiday season as well. And, uh, well, one of the things that I am going to shine a little light on, the way out of this pandemic and also the similarities with the 1918 timeline. Going to get to that here shortly. But first, uh, let's go to the phones. We got Rick in Thousand Oaks, California. Rick, go. Hey, how are you today? Hey, all good. Hope you had a uh, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Uh, same too, but unfortunately, it was a horrible holiday for me. I got COVID. So tell us about this situation. Um, when when were you well, diagnosed? <laughs> uh, first off, I'm 65 year old, non-vaccinated, and immunosuppressed. So my doctor recommended I don't take the vaccine only because they didn't have enough studies on my particular disease. So he said, it's best you just halt and stay you know, safe, which I did. Unfortunately, I bumped it to somebody uh, on Tuesday, which after I did it, I figured he had something because his nose was running. So on Friday, other than California, I went and tried to find a place to do a rapid test, which took about four hours. Finally found one and <clears throat> came back positive, and they just said, go home, and if you feel like you can't breathe and you're having chest pain, go to the hospital. So my problem was I was freaking out because Friday, Christmas Eve, I knew everything was closed for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and I know... If you get COVID, you got to nip it in the bud as soon as possible. So tried calling my doctor. He was closed. Uh, finally, the assistant uh, on call doctor called me back, and um, I told him what I needed to get. So uh, pharmacies were just about to close, and at the time, I had 102 temperature. I had cough, uh, sneezing, sore throat, mucus. It was horrible. It, it was uh, My head felt like it was going to explode. So uh, the doctor uh, recommended I take uh, ivermectin. Uh, fluvoxamine, uh, Zycam, uh, Pepsid. I did my C. I, I always take D3 and B12. I took that, but the most important thing was for me was to find the most important thing, which I thought would be Crepo, was the monochrome antibodies, which was Regeneron. So I found a, uh, I found a doctor who, uh, who had it only because every single place in town and state was all gone in California. They said it's all been sent to Florida and Texas, but uh, there was no, no Regeneron to be found. This one doctor who did house calls, had, you know, 10 supplements left. So um, he came to my office, and uh, he gave me the four shots. And I, I have to tell you, and I'm not even kidding, within three hours, three hours, my temperature went from 102 to 99.1, and I got this on Friday. Today's Monday, and I, it's, it's, it's a miracle. I, I, I have never seen anything like that. I'm a living testament. I'm not even joking. Uh, I, uh, I'm a little weak. I still have some of the symptoms of a cold and mucus, but the fever's totally gone. And uh, without this Regeneron, I would have been a a nightmare. And I'm here on the on the website for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and it says they they paused the allocation of Regeneron because they say it doesn't work on Omicron. 
Well, I'm not sure I got the Omicron, but there's no way they can do any testing on the blood to see which variant you have, but I'm sure it was. So all I'm saying is I just don't understand what's going on here in this country. You know, I'm not vaccinated, and I took this Regeneron, and it worked like a million dollars. Yeah. Well, y- your story is instructive as much as it is great to hear that you're now finding a, a path forward for yourself, and, and may God bless you, and I hope you have a, a full recovery here. You know, from the beginning of the monoclonal antibody treatments, the Regeneron uh, treatment that was the, the first out there, you, you mentioned, you know, the uh, your healthcare officials saying, well, it, you know, it, it's all been sent to Texas and to Florida. Now, remember that I'm here in South Florida, our Governor Ron DeSantis, certainly on the front end of trying to order as many as possible. And yeah, there's something that's ironic within the construct of that conversation. One of the issues that President Biden got sideways with Governor DeSantis about how many monoclonal antibody treatments he ordered. Now, you know, Florida, we got hit hard by the Delta surge. Whole country did, but we did get hit hardest of, of any state during the course of the Delta surge. And he was prepared. He was prepared. In fact, what's pretty remarkable, if you take a look at outcomes in the state of Florida, despite our older demographics, they're among the best in the country. I'll get that to that here in, in just a bit. But a governor doing what President Biden just today said should be done, he said that the solution with the states. Quoting the president, there is no federal solution. This this gets solved at the state level. Our governor, Ron DeSantis, you have Greg Abbott in Texas, ordered these treatments. And they were available. We got them. And then the president of the United States blames our governors for being prepared. And then you take a look at what he's saying today. Well, the reason we don't have tests is why? Well, if you cut through the crap because the federal government wasn't prepared. Why? Because Joe Biden is president of the United States, not Ron DeSantis, as an example. Right? And as an aside, because for a time, the federal government actually limited the number of Regeneron treatments that the state of Florida could could buy. Our governor went out and ended up finding another provider. So it's not just the Regeneron, but there are multiple monoclonal antibody treatments available in our state and available generally. And it's not the case that the reason why other states, including California, might not have more. The the problem is not Texas and Florida. The problem is incompetent leadership because you got the hair Gavin Newsom, who's governor in California, rather than somebody great like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Two sides of stories, one side of facts. But I am glad uh, to hear that you're getting better. And let's go to Jimmy in Brooklyn, Hall of Fame caller. Jimmy, hope the holidays have treated you well. How you doing, sir? I'm doing pretty well. And for the future, I think people should make some New Year's resolutions. We have to wake up, save America. Let me real quick about something. Basic Marxism, the ultimate goal they're aiming for is to get control of the government in order to get control of the means of production and then put in place a socialist system. 
Well, in order to get the means of production and control of the government, you have to first get control of the means of education, the means of information, and the means of communication. And you see the Marxist got that already. Also, basic Marxism, stages of development. When societies are first formed, you have slavery. It gets a little bit better after that. You get the feudalism. This is called stages of development. After feudalism, you get the capitalism. Capitalism brings full modernization and development. You can't move on to socialism and communism until you pass through the, the stage of full capitalist development. After full capitalist development, you get the socialism and communism. That cannot be changed. That's the national, uh, natural course of history, according to Marxists. Russia, China, all these countries never pass through full capitalist development. So by China going back to capitalism decades ago, that didn't mean they're going democratic and capitalist. <clears throat> that means they're using capitalism to build communism. That's basic Marxism. The, the communists outsmarted us. One more thing. The threat to America, and this was built during the Cold War, the threat to America today, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, radical Islam, the drug cartels, the KGB mafias, the Democrats, the media, the unions, the professors, the deep state, and the tax-exempt foundations, and many of the churches. That's the, the totality of the communist movement built in America for, during the Cold War. It's stronger now than it was before the Soviet collapse. All true. Well said. As always, Jimmy, appreciate the call. Reminds me that if by chance you neglected to obtain a copy of The Great Ones, American Marxism, top-selling book of the year, by the way, top-selling hardback book of 2021, American Marxism. And if, after having neglected yourself, you were also neglected through the holidays and you have not been gifted this, you may still pick up your copy of American Marxism and learn a lot more detail to what Jimmy was just talking about. You know, ultimately, controlling the means of production. The China example is a really good one right now for a number of reasons. A lot of people get confused about the economic system in China because you'll hear, hey, you know, there's a Jack Ma out there. He's been allowed to become a billionaire. And we'll see companies like Alibaba that are Chinese countries, uh, companies that are even traded in this country that are, are seemingly bastions of capitalism. Something very similar. It's China's version of, of Amazon, for example. And there are these pockets where that exists. Now, of course, in China, you often see that many of the creators of these platforms, of these companies, of new technologies, well, they, they might go missing. Should they ever run afoul of the government? I mean, details. But also, you have to remember something. No company is allowed to exist in China. No company is allowed to become as prosperous as an Alibaba, for example, without the blessing of Xi Jinping, without Mao getting on board with you. So, yes, there is a capitalist component that has been allowed so that all of that opportunity, all of that wealth, that technology 
is able to be brought about, and then the government will use the benefits of it as they see fit, including often the people that are behind them. This is something that is all part of the unholy relationship that exists with them with many american multinational companies intel the latest over the past couple of days to apologize to china because they were talking about concerns regarding the supply chain pertaining to parts of china and then the chinese government got upset so intel went and and you know they oh we're sorry that's not really what we meant well why is it that any company would have to apologize to china for saying that they're concerned about the supply chain from various different products that are manufactured within that country. Why is that something that is a real issue? Why is it that the NBA, nothing more than a bunch of woke sellouts, the whole damn league, why? Why is it they can't actually tell the truth about China? Why is it we can't talk about the child labor abuses there? You know, it's interesting, but it all gets back to what Jimmy was just talking about. There do remain two sides to stories and one side to facts. And let's go real quick to Bobby and Malibu. Bobby, go. Hi, I was just wanting to ask you, if do you think uh, the government is whipping up a frenzy around these uh, variants, no matter what the... Uh, severity of the case is so they can do what they did in 2020 and um, try to pass through those mail-in ballots so they can rig the election again? Yeah, so I I get this question on a somewhat regular basis, and I understand the reason for it. And I have no doubt that there aren't some out there that are looking towards that particular outcome. Now, again, many states have engaged in reforms that would prevent it. Uh, For example, you know, my state, you have Texas, you have Georgia, passed laws that would not allow what happened in 2020 to be able to happen again. That's something that we have to continue to work on next year. That's something I'll discuss in greater detail coming up tomorrow. Yes, you're going to have an element that is absolutely interested in keeping the pandemic alive for that particular outcome. But when we're talking about the midterm elections, at this point, it's still there's some distance between here and there. In the in-between time, it's about control. It's about control. How many people, how many leftists, how many Marxists on the left want to relinquish the control that they've had during the course of this pandemic? How many of them want to accept at this point that they perhaps have been wrong? That's one of the greater obstacles in the in-between time, in the here and now, especially as you have New York City's mandate in place today and Biden's get vaxxed or get fired mandate that comes into play next week. Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mud Lovin. simple if you need something say something and we uh, we're gonna have your back in any way we can <laughs> i mean that's new right 
Uh, President Biden, that's the uh, quote that I referenced uh, in the previous segment. As Joe Biden's apparently done a 180, he's no longer battling with governors like mine, Ron DeSantis in Florida, or Greg Gabbard in Texas, or insert other governors here. Now he's now, you, you just say what you need. We got your back. It's pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable. And I, the question is, and there is like plausible deniability here. Does he actually remember the feuds that he's had with governors like DeSantis? Does he? I mean, because he sounds almost sincere when he's saying, yeah, whatever you need, we have your back. The state's solution, the federal government, we don't have the answers here. You have the answers at the states. Fascinating. As fascinating as the coverage that doesn't illustrate the hypocrisy of the words that he's articulating today. Just remarkable. By the way, speaking of DeSantis, since he's come up, you know his pandemic policies, they have saved lives. I'm going to break down something from Florida that's instructive everywhere. We'll get to that. And also, pandemic timeline, give an idea about how we get out of this thing. Coming up next, I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one, Mark Levin. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. As people are testing positive for COVID, despite having the vaccination, you know, they're calling out sick and you're seeing shortages in the NYPD, the FDNY, EMS, uh, healthcare workers to the point where the governor has now said uh, it's going to be five days quarantine. You could return to work, which is obviously uh, not in sync with the science of the CDC. Yeah, that is uh, New York Representative Nicole Maliota on Everything that's happening, the the vax mandate going to place New York City, how the state of New York is now handling protocol. So, yeah, the CDC today put out a new recommendation that, yeah, you know, uh, quarantine, you only need to do it for five days now. Only need to do it for five days. Well, okay. What changed? It is as evident as it's ever been. They're just making this up. All of it. They just make it all up as they go. One of the big problems that we have had throughout the course of this year, and to a certain extent throughout this pandemic, is that we don't have the ability anymore not intellectually, not pragmatically, to retain confidence in our authorities, in the Centers for Disease Control. It's clear it's a political body. The FDA. Has there ever been any evidence supporting young children getting vaccinated against COVID-19? Hell no. You know you have you've had between 3 to 5 times more children that have died of pneumonia that have died of pneumonia than have died of COVID-19. So unless your reaction 
was going to be three to five times greater over the pneumonia pandemic that's out there, the crisis with pneumonia with children, you're not going to have justification of getting young children vaccinated. Yet that's what's out there, right? And my point in, in using that example is it's all being made up. Now, truth be told, when it came to young children getting vaccinated, it really had more to do from the health authorities' perspective with them being afraid that young asymptomatic carriers would end up getting their parents and vulnerable people, uh, you know, end up getting them sick with the virus. But even there, there's a morality issue, isn't there? To make it sound like, oh my gosh, you've got to get your young children vaccinated against COVID-19. It's just, a, it's a something that's a must in the state of California starting next school year. It's going to be one of the mandatory vaccinations out there just to send your kids to school. Is there not a morality issue when it does not serve a benefit to them and only in theory could provide a benefit to older, more vulnerable people, even though obviously getting vaccinated doesn't keep you from contracting the virus because we have well over 70% of this country that is vaccinated against COVID-19 and yet How many people are getting this variant? How many people are getting sick? How many cases do we have that are rivaling at this point? As many cases as we've had at any point during the pandemic? So, yeah, that one doesn't wash either. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. I host the Morning Rush on WJNO in West Palm Beach. The Brian Mudd Show, WIOD in Miami. It is always an honor and a pleasure Guesting for the great one and spending some time with you, which I have the pleasure of doing tonight and tomorrow as well. You may follow me and reach out, interact with me on social at Brian Mud Radio. Catch me on Twitter, on Getter, and on Parlor. I'm going to dive into some of the elements of the, the made up effects that we've been living through, made up policies. From the onset. And it really all started, if you think about it, with the 14 days to stop the spread, right? And that's when the Fouch said, yeah, you know, the 14 days and convinced President Trump, hey, we'll we'll do this thing. Right down to the point to where, yeah, my, my state in Florida, we shut down for two weeks. We did that whole thing, too. But after that, DeSantis like, this is full. This is crap. We're, we're done with this. And we didn't do lockdowns after that. But one thing that's interesting, and this came up last hour, so I wanted to touch on it. Because it's specific to Florida, but there's a bigger story. And it's one that I know many, many folks have have tapped into, but is underreported in news media most certainly. And also is probably the biggest consideration as we're sitting here on yet another wave during this pandemic. So my governor, Ron DeSantis, his pandemic policies have provably saved lives, saved lives. Yes, you can go on CNN and you can find right now that even today you had Miami Beach's mayor who was talking about how, you know, Ron DeSantis is is death Santis and his policies lead to 
you know, more cases, more people dying and everything else. But there remain two sides to stories and one side of facts. And there is really bad news for all the death Santas people out there. You've lied because many fewer Floridians have died prematurely during this pandemic. It's a fact. See, despite Florida having the country's largest senior population, thus being among the oldest states in the country, Florida's life expectancy during the pandemic, did you know that it far exceeds the national average? Yes, Florida's life expectancy during the pandemic far exceeds the national average. So while breaking down the data to analyze how that came to be, one really big data point that jumped out at me, mental health, mental health. You know how we are all concerned about mental health until the virus came around and then, you know, forget about mental health, even though it's obviously a huge consideration, right? So mental health, it remains something that many on the left like to pay rhetorical homage to but are seldom willing to meaningfully address. And that has been especially evident during the pandemic. So consider, according to the World Health Organization, those who suffer from depression are 1.8 times more likely to die prematurely. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? But that's a big jump in early death. 1.8 times if you're depressed. Now, you compare the approach of Florida to that of most other states during the pandemic, because even many conservatively-led states haven't been as aggressive in allowing freedom as Florida. Even Texas, which often is mentioned in the same breath as Florida, oh, they went far further, longer than Florida did. So we really were the example of maximum freedom during the pandemic, with a very large and diverse population, with the largest senior population, most susceptible to the virus. That gives you a great case study for what works and what doesn't. So then you think about it, this whole mental health consideration, which approach is most likely to promote positive mental health? A state that's open with a strong economy, low unemployment, or one that's been locked down and is full of mandates. If you're older and you were to contract COVID-19, would you feel perhaps like maybe you have more to live for in our state, in Florida, as compared to lockdown states or mandate cities like New York City today? You know, if people were truly serious about studying the implications of mental health outcomes based on public policy decisions. Florida during the pandemic would be the case study and used as a worldwide example, not just across this country, but as a worldwide example. It is evidenced that pragmatism has been more important. And you back away from what I just provided to you. And you think about this for a moment. It is kind of surprising. I haven't done the nuts and bolts math on this in about a month. I'm going to ballpark it. I could be off by a point or two here, but the point will remain. Somewhere in the neighborhood of just under 20%, so one in five Americans has come down with one of the variants, has come down with COVID-19 at some point since the onset of this thing. And you think about that. 
fewer than one in five. But we know that every single person is impacted every single day by the policies that are put in place because of it, right? If you're restricted, if you have to, ha- if there are mandates, if businesses were were shut down because they were deemed unessential, whatever the situation is, a hundred percent of people impacted by public policy. Whereas closing in on two years into this thing, fewer than one in five people has been affected by it directly, actually contracting it. So then you do start to take a look at the bigger picture. And that's why pragmatism is so important. And you think about the mental health aspect of what goes on. And you think about the reality on the ground that there are three to five times more young children. This is according to the CDC's data. They will not go out of their way to tell you this, nor will anybody else in your godless souls and slanderous news media. But there are three to five times as many deaths with young children due to pneumonia than COVID-19 since the onset of the pandemic in this country. So there remain two sides to stories. One side of facts. There is a way out of this thing. I'm going to get into that. How long the 1918 pandemic lasted? What is suggested about this one? Similarities are fascinating. Dive into that next. Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd in. solution let's get solved at a state level yeah i mean fascinating how joe biden today the governor's conference decided that's the path forward which happens to be a 180 of over where he's been straight throughout the pandemic even prior to his becoming president but i'm glad that he has now seen the light and the solutions are at the state level i suppose that means there'll no longer be battles with governor's like mine, Ron DeSantis in, in Florida. Now, uh, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. One of the things that I've been tracking since the onset of the pandemic, and this was my first go-to, when we saw that this thing was going to be a big deal, I wanted context. So I, I studied you know, all the pandemics that we had in, in modern history and, and try to find similarities, what have you. And... A lot of people have pointed to the 1918 pandemic, and there is good reason for it. It is the most significant, um, and still is, by the way. If you, a lot of times when you'll hear comparisons to the 1918 pandemic in sheer numbers, oh my gosh, if you don't adjust for the population change, you're not talking apples to apples. If you do adjust for population, the 1918 pandemic, far worse still than what we've gone through during the course of this one. But nevertheless, being a student of history, you wanted to revisit some of what we learned coming out of the 1918 pandemic. Uh, so here's the Reader's Digest version. It was caused by the H1N1 virus, the Spanish flu. It was the H1N1 virus. What's, of course, been the most common cause of the seasonal flu ever since. So it coincided with the 1918 flu season, technically starting in the fall of 1917. But the first identified cases in the United States happened to be in January of 1918. So you had cases that slowly grew through the winter, 
But it wasn't until spring of 1918 when Americans were more inclined to be out and about interacting with one another that you really had the virus take off in this country. So it is surging cases in what became referred to as the spring wave. Okay, so that wave, it subsided over the summer. But by October, at the onset of the traditional flu season, the virus, it took off again with the highest number of cases to date during that pandemic. That process repeated over the next year, though cases in 1919 were well below 1918's levels. However, the worst, just in terms of sheer numbers, was yet to come. The worst wave of the 1918 pandemic, just in terms of sheer numbers, didn't occur until the winter of 1920 and what was referred to as the fourth and final wave, even though the CDC will commonly only acknowledge there were three waves. That's for a a different day. But anyway, the 1918 H1 pandemic, it lasted a total of 26 months, ending in April of 1920, or just over two years. So without antivirals, you had a combination of herd immunity and less severe strains that led to the end of the pandemic. Okay, so that's instructive of the context's with where we are in this pandemic. So the spread of COVID around the world and mirrored the 1918 pandemic from where it started to the ebb and flow of all of its sense. In the U.S., the pandemic began in February of last year. That means we're now at least 22 months into this pandemic in this country. Well, beyond that, if you take a look at where it started in determinate dates uh, in Wuhan. So if history roughly held, by the end of spring... And the traditional flu season would be on the other side of the pandemic. That is, if we'll ever be allowed to be by authorities. Now, what's interesting is despite the vast differences in society today versus then, and with all the advances in medical technology over 103 years ago, it increasingly increasingly looks like the more things change, the more they stay the same. So given the proclivity for history to repeat itself, It's also likely that one day these COVID variants overtake H1N1 as the most common form of the seasonal flu as well. Now, it's also interesting that you're starting to see the comeback this flu season in the traditional flu, or at least you were before Omicron. So the question is, again, will we be allowed to come out of this? This with this particular variant, which we touched on earlier in the show, leading to less severe outcomes for those who've had it so far. Continue to follow that. Be right back. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. The only constitutional lawyer you can see today for free. No appointment necessary. Just call him at 877-381-3811. We're not seeing hospitalizations rise as sharply as we did in March of 2020 or even this past fall. Americans, America had, had made progress. Things are better. But we do know that with the rising cases, we still have tens of millions of unvaccinated people and we're seeing hospitalizations rise. 
I think he does manage to pretty much contradict himself inside of 20 seconds there. Yeah, hospitalizations nowhere near where they had been during other surges, but hospitalizations are on the rise here. So early in the show, I broke this down for you. And the bottom line is this. We have seen a greater than doubling of COVID-19 daily cases. I, I like to take a look at the weekly average, so you always have a good sample and you can compare back to whatever point in time you'd like to. We've had a 232% increase in diagnosed cases since we first had the Omicron variant show up in the United States. But we've only had a 17% increase in deaths. So obviously, while still early in this variant, there isn't near as negative of an impact, generally speaking, with people have been getting this thing. You take a look across the world. This was even more remarkable. You go back to when this variant first showed up anywhere around the world, of course, South Africa. We've had a greater than 50% increase in daily cases that have been diagnosed. Yet we've had a decrease in deaths related to COVID-19 worldwide since then. So there's a story to be told. And again, pragmatism needs to win. And you almost heard the president going there before he ended up coming back around to trying to exact a little more fear. And and again, the unvaxxed. I mean, if you're unvaxxed, we don't even know how you're still alive anymore, right? I mean, he already told us this has been a pandemic of the unvaccinated as it is. All right, let's go to... uh, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin, by the way. And uh, let's go to the phones. We've got Ryan in Pearl River, New York. Ryan, go. The new boss is the same as the old boss. And it'd be great if they would bring up antibodies and people who have had it. And we don't want to be lectured by anybody, us conservative patriots out here, by, by, by people who let illegals into the country. And we know they're coming in with all kinds of diseases, including the COVID-19. We don't want to be lectured by them. But the thing is, there are a lot of treatments out there. Some people want the vaccine. Some people also, there's also treatments if you get to the hospital quicker, to your doctor quicker. So we got to let the people know there are a lot of treatments out there in here. The phenomenon of today is we have uh, first world technology that comes out of America, comes out of Europe, but it's also in the hands of, of the third world, too, who really can't deal with it, don't know how to use it, and they have problems with it. But the bottom line here is America makes the world go when it comes to technology. We're way ahead in the medical. You brought up 1918. Obviously, it's hard to really make a comparison because they didn't have the stabilization skills. They didn't have the, the ability. They didn't understand these viruses and bacterial problems as much as we do today. I even say we're even way ahead, years ahead of 20 years ago, how much we've come far further. But we have to let the people know that you've got to go for physicals. I don't want to get on people's cases who were you know, were diagnosed with diseases and stuff. Listen, let's face the facts. I'm going to say something here that's really going to really get to bother a lot of people. But most men, the first physical they take is an autopsy. All right. So we got to get out things in. It's true. We got to get out. Yeah, right. No, I mean, I I hear what you're saying, and and actually, I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. One of the big issues we have in this country, independent of the pandemic, vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D, real critical to one's overall immune health and most americans have a significant deficiency and you know that's a lot to do with why a lot of people get sick just generally so yes um you know doing little things let alone the technology 
And, you know, to your point about, you know, what we have and in terms of treatments and options and everything else, last hour we had somebody who was in a real bad shape just a few days ago before Christmas, ended up getting the Regeneron treatment, talked about his experience with his fever coming down right away and in much better shape. And, you know, it's always critical that you talk to your doctor rather than we play that game here on on air. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of evidence to back up that if you end up getting the monoclonal antibody treatments early on, it can make a profound difference. I mean, that's that's been uh, evidence quite well. Let's go to Lance in Montana. Lance, go. Good evening, sir. Thank you for taking my call. And, Brian, I believe you're doing an excellent job in filling in for Mr. Levin. Appreciate uh, it. I do, I do have one slight disagreement with why you uh, – everybody seems to champion uh, Governor Ron DeSantis for his lead in uh, freedom and, uh, you know, what he's doing to – liberate the state of florida from some of these mandates and policies i just want to shout out to the people of montana who in our last election we overturned a lot of these deep blue state level seats by double digit margins we now have people in place that have uh overturned and made illegal through legislation and law um, some of these mandates and some of these far-left policies and tactics and have created so much legislation just here in our state um, uh, in so many areas, from our Second Amendment to our medical privacy to our choice, you know, uh, whether we wear a mask or not. And I think sometimes uh, the big media and press kind of overlook some of the little places out here, like the last best place where... As a population as a whole, we came together and rejected completely these ideologies, these policies. We came together, voted these people out. We put people in place and created and enacted legislation. And that's uh, that's huge. It's a, uh, appreciate the, the call, Lance. That's a big part of what we're going to talk about tomorrow as well, is what we need to be doing as we look towards next year. Because we made a lot of progress in a lot of areas, to your point, Lance, you know, there are 14 states that passed some form of increased integrity measures on elections. We saw what happened with grassroots level activism at school board meetings and how people have begun to open their eyes to things going on in the classroom that they never realized uh, were taking place, but really have been taking place for decades. And so what you're describing, the progress that you've made in your, your state of Montana is awesome. And that's what we need to be doing everywhere. And incidentally, love your your state is wonderful. This side of John Tester, do something about that guy. But otherwise, no complaints. And there are points to be made when you know you talk. And I know a lot of people will want to defend their state if they feel they've had good leadership during the course of the pandemic. And it might be, you know, uh, maybe you have a chip on your shoulder when you hear something about you know a, a Ron DeSantis, for example. You know, a big part of it does come down, obviously, to to demographics and to, to population. And there are solid cases that could be made for the leadership of a state like yours or South Dakota, for example. And there are others that have you know managed things quite well during the pandemic. The reason, obviously, Florida gets so much attention is that in the grand scheme of large states with very diverse populations, but also specific to the pandemic, you're talking about the largest senior population. That's where, you know, rather than just, you know, kind of beating the drum of Florida, 
It's really instructive in the context of who is most vulnerable to this virus and the outcomes that we've seen in this state. Uh, There is no larger senior population than in the state of Florida. It's the fifth oldest state overall uh, nationally. It's the only large state uh, that has anywhere near uh, a median age as, as high as we have here. So to that end, with a large, diverse, and a well above average vulnerability to this this virus. That's where you take a look at the leadership, the outcomes uh, during the course of of the pandemic. But it's it's not intended to be a slight towards anybody else. Let's go to Susan in Brooklyn. Susan, go. Hi, Brian. It's great to hear you for the great one. Uh, Appreciate listen, it. You can- uh, the mentioning about the uh, vaccine mandate, the OSHA um, order, the emergency temporary standard thingy. Uh, can you walk us through because September, I mean September, January 7th, 2022, SCOTUS is going to hear arguments for this in some kind of a shadow docket, whatever that is. And but that the recommendation is that employers covered by the mandates should continue to prepare for compliance. Does that mean like the worst? Can you just like give us like a little insight into this horrible situation? Well, you described it pretty well. Horrible situation. A hot mess is probably the best way to describe what's taking place here. And the reason is what you just mentioned. The emergency hearing, and that's what this will be, the actual session for the Supreme Court starts this subsequent week, but they're going to hold this emergency hearing on January 7th, which is a week from this upcoming Friday, in advance of the normal session to consider the Biden-Ocheral vaccine mandate for private employers. One little issue before we even get to the conversation about that particular hearing, the Biden Ocheral vaccine mandate is in force, oh, right, a week from tomorrow, January 4th. So we've already, no matter what, we've got a hot mess in our hands. Because you could have the Supreme Court strike down the Biden vaccine mandate, which I think is likely to happen, should happen. It's wholly unconstitutional for the federal government to use a a regulatory arm to force people into a vaccination that was never a condition of employment previously, that's absurd on every level. And it is a clear constitutional violation. So I do believe the Supreme Court will strike it down. Question is, how much damage is done? Even if that happens, how much damage is done? Because they've waited to hold this hearing, I don't know, is it convenience? Until after the rule is actually in place. So next week is going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess, and we're, we're going to have to, to see how this deal plays out. And I do feel for those that are caught in the middle of this deal and are trying to figure out what the heck to do, because I don't know that there are a lot of really good answers, uh, except that hopefully your uh, company will, will have a certain level of understanding until there is a ruling by the Supreme Court if it comes down to it, or perhaps if you're in one of the states that have banned it. Like, for example, talking about Florida, Florida is one of the states that has banned the Biden vaccine mandate. So it's not lawful for any businesses to impose that next week or any other time in uh, in our state and, and several others out there.
Let's go to Maria in Louisiana. Maria, go. Hello, this is Maria in California, actually. Oh, California. And I'm a health. Yes, California, and I'm a healthcare professional. And it is appalling the policies that this country has taken with a pandemic. There were flu pandemic guidelines developed by the CDC, I believe, in 2017. You don't lock down healthy people, number one, and a whole list of other policies. Now, I'm a dietitian. I look at my patients from the terms of comorbidities, such as low vitamin D levels and obesity and diabetes out of control. And America, what are people doing to reduce your risk just from a personal standpoint? Okay, we have seen that a lot of the mortality is not only in the elderly that are compromised, but looking at your personal risks. Also, looking at the age of the risk of patients who develop death and, and, you know, real serious problems. Do the young get as sick as the elderly? We need to look and glean best practices from all over the world. Hmm. Let's look at the way maybe Sweden was taking care of this in the early stages, Hong Kong, maybe uh, even South Africa. Why are some of these nations experiencing different types of outcomes in America? What are we doing wrong in this country? We don't have a vaccine for AIDS, yet AIDS has been taken care of, reduced mortality through outpatient treatment. And when is this country going to bring it on, do the research, and do the double-blind studies on effective treatment, not just vaccines? Because vaccines are losing their efficacy. It's so true. I mean, these are good points. Appreciate the uh, the call, Maria. And uh, we'll be right back. Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mud Lovin. Inflation is real. In five days, uh, we manufacture can and cans and we also purchase. January 1st, the price of cans are going up 64%. Look at that sweet action. Happy day. 64% increase in the cost of cans starting next week. To go along with the Biden vaccine mandate that could result in tens of millions of Americans getting fired. Ah, good times, right? See, that uh, Goya's CEO on Fox and Friends this morning talking about inflation. And so there's a lot that I think we have to look forward to next year. A lot that we're going to have to be minding the store on. But there's also a lot that's about to start hitting us. You know, related to the whole inflation thing, it's kind of crazy. We're working on a bunch of remodeling projects at home and get a call from the AC guy. And he's like, hey, uh, I think you should order your AC system even though we're not planning on doing anything on that front for several months, you, you should go ahead and order it now. Well, okay, why? Well, because, you know, the, the price is, is going up by nearly double in January. All right, so elections have consequences, and we are going to continue to see the impact of the consequences of what happened last year, certainly as we enter next year including on the inflation front, which makes it more important yet again to control what we can control and what is otherwise a very chaotic time because we have Joe Biden minding the store 
to the extent that he knows how. But there is a lot that we can control. There is a big path forward. There's huge momentum on the right. A lot of people have their eyes open, and they are opening. And it's really important for those of us who believe in what we believe and who will speak truth to get involved with those who are open to information. On the Friday after Thanksgiving, I talked a lot about demographics and how it's actually the youngest voters, those between the ages of 18 to 34, who most disapprove of Joe Biden as president of the United States. First time in American history, a Democrat president has had the lowest approval ratings with the youngest voters. That presents a generational opportunity. So one of the big things I'm going to be getting into on tomorrow's show is how to activate, how to inform, engage, and control what we can control and knock the cover off the ball to the extent that we can in 2022. Because we got a lot against us, but we got a lot that we have going for us if we take the bull by the horns. We'll do that. Till tomorrow, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin.